Welcome to Life's Dirty Little Secrets. And today we have the honor of having Kristen Campbell, who is a clinical psychosexual therapist accredited with the Society of Australian Sexologists and has been working as a sex and relationship therapist in her practice on the south coast of New South Wales in Australia. Kristen also teaches for the University of Sydney and holds a passion for women's sexuality and the impact of sexual trauma on sexual well-being. We're all very human and fallible, and yet we live in a society that rewards pretending we're not fallible, or the range of acceptable fallibility is narrow. We are constantly comparing our insides to other people's outsides and feeling inadequate and guilty, even ashamed. Trying to blend in means parts of ourselves must disappear, and we must then live in fear that we will be found out. Here, together, we will create a space where we can laugh, cry, and carry our suffering and hurts lightly. In the service of being deeply human. This is Life's Dirty Little Secrets. Welcome, Kristen. Aw, thanks so much. Yes, it's wonderful to have you here. And I think the first thing I'd love to hear from you is what made you choose this area? Obviously, you know, sex and talking about sex is quite a taboo. And that's what, you know, part of what we're going to be discussing today. And therefore, I love to hear the story of what gets people into working as insects therapy or talking about sex, especially women's sexuality, inevitably it's not the easiest area to go into. So tell us about it. Right. And which I think is such a, a good question. And, and, you know, particularly when we are here talking about the taboo of, of sex, because essentially this is what brought me into, into sex therapy of not only my own, you know, personal interest of, of noticing that there was this thing that everybody's interested in we see it everywhere we see it on tv and you know people are talking about it growing up you know that that there's so much that that is around sex but yet nobody feels particularly comfortable talking about it so it would always feel like this well certainly for me it was it was like this this never-ending quest for information that I could never find out enough about this topic area that felt so important to people. I was professionally trained as a as a social worker and my first job as a as a newly graduated social worker was in a mental health unit working with people who had, you know, really, really complex and chronic mental illnesses. And a lot of the time were prescribed a team of medications that that would inevitably really harm their sexual function and and diminish their sexual function and you know we were we were working in a rehab unit that was supposed to be holistically addressing you know the issues that that consumers were experiencing in their lives and as a social worker I was always naturally interested in relationships that people that people have in their lives and particularly people with chronic and complex mental illness and one of the things that I would consistently find when I was talking with our clients about these issues is that they weren't able to have fulfilling, enjoyable sexual experiences a lot of the time because of the impact of their mental illness and the medications that they were taking. But also nobody was talking about this. You know, that the, the people were often really significantly impaired in in this area of their life, but they didn't seem to be 
any any part of the programs that we were offering that were addressing this. We would talk about healthy relationships, you know, and we would be educating around healthy relationships, but we wouldn't be talking about, you know, healthy sexual relationships with yourself and with other. You know, I I got curious and I had heard I had heard that sex therapy was a was a profession. So, you know, that that took me on that ongoing quest for information, I guess, wanting to know more. That's wonderful. And also, how do people relate to you when you say that you're a sex therapist? Have you noticed anything about the way people respond? You have very popular at parties. Yes. It's, it's, it's one or the other in terms of you're either, you're either the person that people want to talk to or it is a conversation shut down. People, people, <laughs> start, people start backing away. People start backing away from you and think, oh, gosh, like I don't know quite what to say. Or the other thing is that, you know, people always have a friend. They always want to know about their friend who has, who has you know, so such an issue over here and, and they always start to tell you about their friend. I think that there's usually, they're, they're usually the two responses, either things that, you know, people are interested and that they think that, you're just hearing about all of the dirty little secrets of people's lives, you know, along the way. And so they're fascinated by that and they, they are curious and they want to know. A lot of the time there's then, you know, a lot, a lot of disappointment when they hear that a huge part of my job is talking with everyday people <laughs> that are experiencing everyday sexual problems that I'm usually not talking with, with clients that are, that are out there having you know, weird and wonderful sex lives. They're actually just trying their hardest to navigate, you know, what, what we would consider is as, as really kind of, you know, normal, healthy sexual behavior. So, you know, most people are usually curious and they think that, you know, I must just have it all worked out and have all the answers to things. The other, the other curious, and I, and I think this has changed over, over the time in my career so far, but certainly, you know, 10 years ago when I first trained in sex therapy, people would confuse it as sex work and that they would think that, that I, I was training to become a sex worker. And, and so that would definitely shut the conversation down when they had heard, you know, that I was a social worker in this really, you know, standard profession and all of it a sex worker. <laughs> well, what could be more social than that? <laughs> right. So we would have to have lots of clarifying conversations as, as what, a sex therapist is and, and lots of people think that a sex therapist is how they're portrayed in the movies if you've ever seen the movie you know meet the fuckers and and the sex therapist you know mother-in-law and mum you know that's that's in that this is Fokker and you know she's she's all about she's in the yoga pants and right down there in amongst people's bodies and you know all the stereotype of, of sex therapy so yeah, it takes a it takes a, a little while for people to work out that actually it looks just like you know any other counselling psychologist you know profession where we're talking to people just particularly about sexual issues. But yeah, I think my parents were probably not so impressed <laughs> when when I initially told them I was I was studying postgraduate qualifications in sex therapy. But you know they've they've come to to see the value in that, and certainly in our family, it's changed the culture of how of how we talk about sex. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking because I think the 
it's fascinating to listen to you and the and how you navigated it socially because it is so true, right? We're here, we're talking about the taboo that people do feel uncomfortable talking about sex. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I first started working in, you know, as a, as a recently graduated, I, you know, didn't talk to individuals about their sex life. That was like a no-go topic. I didn't see it was relevant. And with many of my supervisees, I asked them, do you talk to your clients about their intimacy? And they're like, why? That's not what they brought to the room. And, you know, more and more with my work, I've realized how essential it is, not just for the couples, but the individual, because it's such an important part of the way we relate to others and also the importance of the quality of our sex life is indicates also the quality of our relationship and having more conversations about it allows us, gives us permission for it to be okay to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And right. what shared just reminds me of how much people do actually want to talk about it because there isn't an inherent curiosity, but it is, you know, very much veiled with this kind of taboo around inappropriateness or morality or, um, yeah, just not the thing you do socially mm-hmm. appropriate, really. I guess, uh, so I'm wondering what you could say about how that came about, that it did become a taboo subject. Because I would imagine this is not, you know, this is not an area of mine, but I would imagine that other cultures, other times, it wasn't quite like this. Yeah. Well, I suppose it, it's just kind of saying what what is the taboo of sex, right? In terms of because we've, we're obviously talking about the taboo of talking about about sex, but you know, there's there's this is such a layered issue as far as there is, you know, what what we would say is like the mainstream taboo, which is talking about you know sex in in relationships that we would see as socially acceptable, right? So you know, if we think about between you know, men and women or over time we're, we're getting a lot of change in the area of feeling more socially accepting of relationships that aren't just between a man and a woman and, and when legal adjustments now to that in terms of, of lots of countries are now, uh, you know, legalising same-sex marriage. And, and this is then filtering down into society where we can see there's more acceptance of talking about and accepting same-sex relationships and and relationships between different different people who are, who might identify as different genders but essentially we we then have kind of below that is is taboo around talking about things like casual sex or fetishes or or sex amongst older adults or amongst people with disabilities you know that that we kind of we, we start out in a general discomfort about talking about sex in what we would consider socially acceptable setting for sex, but then we sort of filter down from there to, to we become more and more uncomfortable talking about sex in, in all of these different different settings and let alone, you know, when we get to things like masturbation, particularly for women, you know, that this becomes, again, you know, a, a taboo where we're not supposed to talk about this. This is, this is an on-the-dinner-party, on you know, conversation agenda. And, and so where this has, has come from, we can trace it back because there is, there is no one agreed-upon place that the taboo of this has come from. All of the different schools will have a different idea. So there's psychological ideas, there's anthro- anthropological ideas, there's cultural ideas. 
of where it has come from. And, you know, certainly there is agreement that religion has played a significant role in in creating taboo, that there's the rules that, that religion associate with what's considered socially acceptable sexual behaviour and anything that doesn't fit into that. So for many religions, socially acceptable sexual behaviour would be considered penis in vagina, sex between a man and a woman who are ideally married. And so anything that doesn't fit into that category becomes what's considered socially unacceptable and therefore that is where the taboo starts because if, if, if you're a person who is engaging in sex other than that socially acceptable category, then, then there, there is inherent guilt and shame around that because that, that is not something that would be encouraged or, or even spoken about in, in your community. So there, was, there is a really interesting idea around why, why sex is taboo and, and it's because there is, and this, is, this comes from the field of cultural anthropology and there has been studies done in, in this space of looking at that the idea that humans do not like, we have a collective fear of death right that, that we don't want to see ourselves as animals and and the eventual our eventual demise and so part of of what we do as a species to move away from that that fear of death is to see ourselves as more spiritual and or evolved than than other animals sex comes into this in that sex reminds us that we are in in our basic form animals and and that we have these primal primal urges, primal needs, primal desires, and that that actually reminds us of, of, you know, our mortality. So there's an idea that that is at its at its core where it has come from as a species, and then certainly over time we can layer that with the different institutions and, and you know, societies that, that go, that have been created within our species. So, you know, things like power and control and the and the you know the the perpetual quest for power and control and groups who seek to hold the power and control in society have very much played a role in creating taboo around sex so you know we we're all familiar with the patriarchy as a as a as a collective and the idea here is that is that men hold the power and control in in society and they set the agenda. So we, we, can, we can hold responsibility here as far as, you know, the taboo around women's sexuality of women needing to be seen as, you know, at home with their children, certainly not as a sexual being, sexually being holding fidelity to one person only and, and that this actually kind of frees up, um, you know, their their male partner to not hold themselves to the same to the same standard because the woman is, you know, at home essentially looking after looking after the camp. So the, it, there's all these different, you know, I suppose ideas around where this where this comes from. Another one would be, of course, around around religion and the the rules that like we've already spoken about but then the other part of that is though the individuals who are a part of these societal structures can then worsen the guilt and shame that we feel at an individual level so let's say for example in a family we have a family that 
that really subscribes to religious ide- ideology and and rules that that often there's premarital sex or sex that is not between a man and a woman, penis and vagina sex, would be not considered acceptable. Then if their child, for example, shows shows signs of, of what we would say is normal sexual development, so say, for example, you know, a young child touching touching their, their penis or well, the parent witnesses that, that they can then, you know, shame shame that child for that behavior and therefore are passing on the individual kind of guilt and shame that 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 you know child might feel in in that very natural urge that they've experienced so this this is we we would say in 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 social work background you know part of of what we would see is the different levels of of the system so we've got the micro level which is that individual level of what happens between individuals we have the meso the meso level which is you know the groups and societies that we're a part of and then we've got our macro level which is the bigger the bigger context of of our world and we can see that there's different tactics in terms of maintaining to through at all those different levels and i guess having more and more of these conversations us well helps us to question our position and to think about what we want to be able to be talking about and why and as I was thinking about our talk today and the taboo and what is really the taboo, I think the taboo is being able to talk about it, the taboo that we want intimacy, we want sex, that we might have different desires for sex is also a bit of a taboo. I was thinking that, you know, there is a myth that our desire for sex stays across our lifespan. I think there's a taboo around women's desire for sex versus mm-hmm. men as well, that it should be different or that it is different. And so having these conversations, being able to, to, to break the silence also gives us permission to ask ourselves these questions. And it begs the question in terms of a quality of any relationship is, you know, how intimate can we really be if we can't be open with our own selves around our sexuality desires? Because if we can't have conversations internally, it's very difficult to be having them with a partner or with a community where you want to be having this. Right, right. And, and I think, you know, more to that, Emory, is that it's really normal. Both of these things are normal, right? It's normal to, to, to want to have a sexual response in your body, you know, or not, it's normal, it's normal either way. It's also normal to be impacted by all of these different messages that we get. Just because we are impacted doesn't mean that that there's something wrong with us that we haven't been able to hold up, you know, a enough of a wall against against those messages. Both of these things are normal. And really being able to to look at the impact of it. You know, that if, if you have noticed that through your life, you know, when different things have happened around your sexual development, if, if part of the response that you're feeling to that is shame, you know, that, that is not something that we would feel without the influence of, of, these, of these structures and, and of, of these parts of our macro system, yes. right? And it's quite similar to, you know, say when we talk about body image, of when we look in a mirror and and critique our body, these are not thoughts that we would have at a biological 
level. These are these are thoughts that are created from being in the world that we live in. You know that 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 wouldn't be there if if we didn't have the messages sent to us that that we have. You know around what our bodies should be like, and and this extends into sex. I mean, it can be in such a, a separate area, but this is the same for sex that. That if 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 we had grown up, you know, and somehow managed to be unaffected by the world that we live in, this this wouldn't be a thing. We wouldn't be sitting here talking about this on a podcast because it would just be a fundamental part of our daily life, much like you know, toileting is. That we're not we're not talking about a, a podcast on on toileting, right? Because it's just an accepted part of our bodies. It's something that we all know and and know each other do, and we don't need to you know question that or talk about that. There's no specific messages that we're sent around you know how we should toilet. I don't know. I think I think a podcast on toileting might be interesting. Well, we'll we'll, we'll have to think about that. We'll get back to you on that. We have to find sure. an expert in that first. Find some experts. Find some experts. Exactly. But but yeah, I think I think that's kind of you know a huge part of this is that that all of this does come from this bigger world that we live in, and what it actually looks like for individuals is you know we have our emotional, our psychological impact in terms of guilt and shame. It can look like confusion. It can look like a lack of confidence. It can look like criticism and judgment of yourself for how your body responds or things that you like or perhaps what you dislike. It can look like disgust in response to different aspects of sex or bodies or sexuality. And it can look like not talking about sex and sexuality with a partner or with with anybody else. And, you know, it can look like all of these things you know, there's there's also a part of taboo just to kind of take a, a little right hand in terms of one of the common threads of, of the background of where this taboo has come from is a sense of danger, right? So, you know, uh, one, one of the things that, that religion has offered the world is some social order, right, in terms of, you know, when, when we our species became more involved and resources became scarcer because there was more of us, then, you know, we needed some structure in society for society to be able to function, you know, that we couldn't be just going around and, and you know, having, having dozens of children that couldn't be supported because, you know, the society as a whole would not have functioned. So, you know, sex all of a sudden became dangerous because of, of the risks, you know, associated with having children that you couldn't support. And, if that if we could say that that's one of the places that that the taboo has come from, you know, we also still have taboo around things like child sexual abuse, bestiality, incest, you know, non consensual sex between between adults. All of these things still have the element of danger. You know that we still have issues around safety. You know, for the people who who are who are victims of of those behaviours and. Taboo still serves in in that way as far as it, it helps us to not understand what is right and wrong, right, to a degree. But the, the way that it doesn't serve us is that it usually comes along with silence. And this actually benefits those who, who you know, use sex as a weapon, okay. you know, in, in their world. So certainly it's, it's, it's okay to see that, yes, there, there is part of it that actually helps us as a society to know, 
you know, things that are right and things that are wrong and helps us to function in a way. You know, we, we need to have boundaries to, to know what would feel acceptable, but it's the silence that actually goes along with the taboo that, that causes us, you know, issue, whether it is at an individual level when we're talking about normal, healthy sexual behaviour and sexuality or when we're talking about those who are using sex as a crime, that they use silence as a, as a means to be able to continue with, with their behaviour. Absolutely. And I was thinking about, you know, the lack of conversation around sex is is dangerous because it means that certain individuals may not know that what is happening is wrong. So especially young people or even children, you know, there's the research to back this up that the more they know about sex, the less likely they are to be a victim of a sort of molestation or you know, sexual abuse. And the same goes for adults. You know, if they haven't been exposed to enough conversations about what they would consent to or what they wouldn't, they might find themselves in very tricky situations and then feel very ashamed to talk about it. Absolutely. Having these open conversations is a protective factor. And the younger, the better, even though it's still a huge contention. I know, you know, in Singapore, we have a very multicultural community and talking about sex in schools, parents have to consent to whether they have sex education classes and their children can opt out because the different communities, some of them find it very, very uncomfortable and inappropriate uh, to be talking about sex with, you know, I think the, um, our school started at the age of I think it was nine or 10, which you, know, you could say is, is a bit late in some ways because they should be talking about certainly about body parts and, and you know, the act of sex, even young. So that right. children are aware of what's appropriate and what's not and, and, and how to talk about it and not to hold secrets. You know, all these things are really protective, but because of the taboo and the fears around talking about sex. And I think with children and young people, there's a fear that you'll give them ideas yeah. or that somehow they'll, they'll think about doing it, although they, they have the curiosity naturally anyway. We don't you right. know, doesn't add to that curiosity, but there's certainly you know, not enough conversations happening, and that is, does create a level of risk for young people but also for adults, and, and not just in terms of getting themselves in situations that could be dangerous, but also reduces the likelihood of them reaching out, can increase the trauma because of the shame that is attached to it as well. Yeah, it has a huge impact. Absolutely. Here in the States, this has become a hugely political issue. And it's become quite the cause amongst, you know, very conservative, religious conservative pockets, you know, entities, whole states within our our country. And it's specifically gone after, you know, this idea of what children ought to be able to to learn in school. And I think we've always had, you know, a lot of parental consent around sex education in the United States. And that varies from region to region, but but now it's really becoming quite quite discouraging with all the, the book bans and, you know, scouring libraries for anything that might be suggestive of some of that stuff, you know, it isn't just, 
you know, man, woman, you know, <clears throat> keep right. the lights, keep the lights out, you know, don't enjoy it. Procreate. Right. That's yeah. right. Because I think he can still see, you know, sometimes when we talk about the history around this, we think it is history, right? In terms of somehow we've progressed enough that that we can, you know, critically analyze all of these messages that we receive in society, but that's absolutely not the case. And I think, you know, that that can feel really obvious in the States at the moment in terms of some of those structures that have held so much influence in this space are, are still very much current and influential, mm-hmm. yeah. you know. And and look, I think that it's not it's not. I I'm I'm in Australia, I suppose, where we where we still have those influences and structures, of course. But you know, I was consented for my for my six year old learning about about relationships in their in their PDE health, you know, curriculum just last week. And I thought I'm not being consented around what he's learning in mathematics or or English, you know, he's, he's six. And at this point in time, yeah, they're, they're learning about body parts. And I thought, oh my goodness, my children could probably teach the, the curriculum on that to their peers at this point, you know, that my friends often joke, they know all the, all the names of their body parts, you know, correct terminology, because it is, to me, that is so important. I want them to understand, you know, what, what their body parts are. These are their bodies. And they should have that information and we need to be promoting bodily autonomy to be able to prevent, you know, some of the the ways that, that you know, people can use sex as a weapon. This isn't just about how, you know, consensual adults enjoy their sexual relationship. That is one, that's one aspect of it, you know, but, but certainly how we support our kids in, in navigating those who might want to harm them in a sexual way. You know, to me, that's actually more important. You know, to to be able to arm them with information and and support them to understand through that that they do have bodily autonomy and and you know what they can do with that when they grow up and and the pleasure that they can find in that is one aspect, but but also how they you know how they can you know act protectively for their bodies and and also to be protective of other people's bodies. It's funny. It's how dis subtle some of the conversations around consent and lack of consent can happen I remember years ago we were watching Sleeping Beauty and my son my eldest was probably 10 and we were watching it with obviously my daughter was the one that was most interested in it again a very gendered but they were watching it too and obviously at the end the prince kisses Sleeping Beauty Mm. and my boy said is that consenting because she's asleep? And I thought, wow, you're yeah. absolutely white. That's not consenting. And then we went back and we looked at Snow White and the same thing happens with Snow White. And all these kind of stories, right? They're fairy tales. Nobody stops and thinks about it. Um, right. He was right. He, neither of them were consenting. So then we had this big conversation and my daughter was very disappointed with the fact that it got deflected from this picture sort of, of beauty and waking up and being saved by the prince and it became a conversation around how inappropriate that is right <laughs> it's happening right it's so subtle but it's insidious right in terms of being seemingly innocent you know beauty and the beast is another one and i often have conversations with my kids when they're interested and they're watching that about you know how how the beast is actually displaying a, a really obvious pattern of coercive control 
<laughs> for Belle, right? And this is this is this is this is something that our children are watching from from a very very young age. It's part of this messaging that starts so young, you know that it's that it's no wonder that by the time many people get to adulthood, where where you know there is an expectation to have a sexual relationship, you know that that then they're a bit stuck and they don't quite know what to do with themselves at that at that point and then are often needing to seek help, which I think brings us to, you know, a, a really good point. We've already touched on it in terms of formal education, you know, that, that our children can be receiving through school. But this is, this is true for adults. Most of us as adults haven't had, you know, great sex education and this is a way, you know, that we disrupt some of this, this silence and taboo around sex is to is to educate ourselves, you know, to be able to learn about what's the history of some of this and look at it critically, you know, of, of who who has benefited from from these messages over time. And certainly, like I was saying, one part of it will be that individuals and, and societies have received some benefit. But, you know, mostly the benefit will will go to those who have sat in powerful positions you know, and have held influence over society. So, you know, part of, of what we can do is is start to look at look at educating yourself as as an adult in, in terms of, you know, what even is normal sexual behavior, what is healthy sexual behavior, what does that what does that actually look like? You know, what what are some of the things that promote, you know, pleasure in the body and with with yourself and with a partner. There's some wonderful resources in this space now and you know I'm a huge fan of, of Emily Nagoski you know from the from the states and she has wonderful resources that I share with with all of my clients you know particularly she has a, a book called Come As You Are there's a podcast by the same name and her her website has some fantastic resources including worksheets that help you to be able to you know prompt through some of the ideas that, that you might hold around sex and and reflecting on sexual behavior that has felt you know good and and pleasant and also that that has felt not so good in the space of, of the kids as well I was just thinking that what feels good and what doesn't feel good and how important it is to have those open conversations but how inadequate most of us feel in having those conversations with ourselves and our partners and the lack of those conversations leads to this dissatisfaction in, in a very important area of our life. And I think some of the curiosity that we often hear from people, you know, talking about sex feels a little bit immoral or a little bit dirty. Some people think it's, a, you know, a bit tintillating. But that kind of reminds me of it being such an area of interest to all of mm. us. And that's why it feels important to be having more open conversations because ultimately we all want to have a sexual relationship which is satisfying. And also there's some people who don't, and that's also okay. Mm. I think the the it goes both ways that some, you know, individuals that I've come across that don't have an interest mm. in and feel ashamed about that and feel that that's wrong. And it is complicated if they're in a partnership with somebody who does and how to navigate that is a completely other sort of conversation. But right. 
the more we're able to have these conversations, the more it becomes, we have permission to be curious, to explore, to understand our needs, what we like, what we don't like, what we can do about it in mm-hmm. the relationships that we have. Right. And how to stand in your own space, right? In terms of just as much as there's a taboo around, you know, having a healthy sexual relationship with yourself or with others, there's just as much of a taboo if if that's not something that feels important to you, you know? And I think that the the sexually and gender diverse community is doing such wonderful work in this area of drawing the attention to the broad range of normal human sexual expression, which which means that, you know, asexuality is also is also on that spectrum of what is considered normal, you know, human sexual expression. You know, and there's and there's there is, there's such good information in that space now of being able to look at at, at that range of diversity and be able to find something that you might identify with and, and that feels like it fits it fits you. It just struck me. I mean, I, I wonder if we could get rid of the word normal because that does become so categorical and who decides, you know, maybe, I don't know, healthy would be an alternative. I don't know. Right. For some, some people getting a hug is like really nice. And for some people it's very aversive. And so I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the, the biggest questions that we in the sex therapy field are asked is what, what is normal? And I suppose the standard answer to that is that there really is no such thing as normal. It's what is normal for the person, right, in terms of what, what feels like it, it fits them and, and what feels right for them, however that looks. So I suppose it, the, the issue with it is that, you know, what, what is considered healthy, it could be the same, it could be the same criticism, right? Because what we're we're still impacted by these messages of what is considered healthy and and what who decides what is healthy, right? So it, it really is trying to come back to the individual in terms of what feels what feels good for them, what what brings, you know, satisfaction, what brings a sense of pleasure, you know, with, of being in their bodies. And, you know, how do we find more of that? Mm. Yes. And I guess that piece around, you know, pleasure being important to everybody. And there's something about that that feels a bit immoral. Mm. Open conversation about that's just usually a fact. And pleasure comes in many ways. If somebody is asexual, they may get a lot of pleasure from touch, but it's not sexual touch. But, you know, some people may need a lot of touch and need a lot of intimacy and a lot of sex. And I think that being able to have the conversation means that, you know, we get permission to want pleasure and what pleasure means for each of us is very Mm -hmm. different. And I was thinking just briefly, like as we sort of come to towards the end of our very precious time with you, Kristen, I was thinking about sort of the takeaways that we can give our listeners. Mm -hmm. So obviously, We've navigated a bit about the history of the taboo and what it means and why it's there and it continues to be there and the risks that are there as a result and also the impact that it can have on our relationships if we continue to have difficulties talking about it. And I guess there's a lot of myth busting, I think, behind these taboos as well around 
you know, like you said, what is normal, what is healthy. I was thinking also about, you know, desire versus arousal, how that's quite, you know, there's, there's a bit of myth around how, you know, some people are more responsive, like they, they'll, they'll get aroused very quickly, for example, and for them, it's quite easy while some people, so it's more sort of spontaneous is the word, not a responsive, spontaneous versus some people more time. Mm. And so I think having more conversations will allow us to open up to these different myths and getting to know each and every one of us and what we need to have the intimacy that we want. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think it is, you know, step number one is to educate yourself, right? Of not not kind of relying on that happening, you know, through through any other external source is to seek that information out yourself, you know, that there is there is really good information available to us at this point in history, right? So we have, you know, we have all of the Emily Nagoskis and, you know, the Esther Perels and and all of those wonderful leaders in, in this space who who have a platform and, and we're able to access their resources and be able to educate ourselves. And, and that then can then lead into being able to develop your own values of saying, you know, now that I understand where where the messages and the beliefs have come from, what what would I like my values to be? You know, what would be considered normal for me? What would feel healthy for me? You know, and being able to craft that and create those values yourself, so that that then helps to be able to guide and direct into what you know what you need to do next. Right. You know, to be able to to then create some valued action. You know, of, of of, of turning that into into the behavior that comes into your life so would you say the conversation starts with yourself mm, yeah I really would in terms of you know things like a, a formal education at school that's part of the picture right that's part of how we give our children information but for adults nobody's going to give us that information that we have to seek that ourselves and whether we do that through you know self-directed research online of starting with a google search starting with a you know generative ai search of, of some of the starting places of where this might be and you know educate yourself first because through that comes confidence to be able to bring it up you know with those who are important in your life that that you feel like you would be able to have this conversation with and, you know, part of that can also be accessing some therapy. If you find that through that self-directed learning that there's things that you're unable to navigate or that you're getting stuck on or caught on, you know, this is where there are, there are sex therapy services available, you know, that you can access. And, again, you know, part of, of recent events in, in, our, in our history have, a, have enabled accessibility to that, that you can access sex therapy through online telehealth appointments from anywhere in the world now, you know, that, that, that is accessible for many, many people. So that, that's a resource that's there to be used and, and to help to guide. Brilliant. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Kristen, for your time today. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. Always lovely to talk about it. Yes, and we've, you know, started chipping away at that taboo together today. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Life's Dirty Little Secrets for some legitimate, honest, and accurate information about human sexuality. 
We have included links and resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Thanks so much for tuning into the Life's Dirty Little Secrets podcast. If you have any feedback for us or secrets for future episodes, you can email us at lifesdirtylittlesecretspodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Life's Dirty Little Secrets or on Facebook at Life's Dirty Little Secrets Podcast. We invite you to follow, rate, and review us on wherever you listen to this podcast. It is the best way to get our podcast out in front of new listeners. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more. See, See you, you then. then.